Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Martin Xia to the show. Dr. Xia is a licensed psychologist and executive director at the Cognitive Behavior Therapy Center of Southern California, otherwise known as CBT SoCal. He specializes in helping people with OCD, anxiety, and ADHD. Today, we will learn more about his academic and professional journey and what he and others at CBT SoCal do and what he loves most about his job. Dr. Xia, welcome to our podcast. Pleasure, Brad. Look forward to speaking with you. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show. To start off, just tell me a little bit more about your undergraduate studies and when you first took an interest in psychology. Right. So I uh, attended undergraduate studies at Tufts University in Boston. Um, and uh, I had, uh, you know, had an interest in sort of psychology, at least what I thought it was in high school, um, just because, you know, I had friends who loved history and another friend that loved chemistry and really sort of found their thing and, or, you know, friends who were really into into math. And um, none of those really kind of felt like they were going to be my jam. I thought maybe I'd be interested in medicine because I kind of like the idea of, uh, of helping people and, um, you know, being a professional in that regard. Um, but I was also just really interested in, in kind of people and motivation and uh, personality and things like that. So I went, when I went, uh, when I first went to, uh, got to Tufts, I thought, well, maybe I'll, I, I sort of was an unofficially declared psychology major, but with a possible eye open still to, um, you know, maybe pre-med coursework. And then I remember within the first week of uh, college, I saw my friends in the dorm who were doing you know, bio 10 homework, their first pre-med classes. And I said, I guess I'm not going to med school because uh, <laughs> that looked out of my league. Um, and anyways, long story short, um, yeah, I mean, at, at my university, international relations, international business and economics is really big. So I kind of considered that for a while just because that's what a lot of people were doing, but uh, eventually gravitated back towards uh, psychology and um, I, you know, got, got my degree, undergraduate degree. Yeah. I believe you majored in both psychology and Spanish. Am I, am I right? I did. It was a double major. Um, you know, I had studied Spanish and in, in high school and uh, really enjoyed the language and I studied abroad. So it just sort of made sense to, you know, take enough classes and, and have that major as well. But, so at what point did you actually think about continuing your, your career um, academically and to get your graduate degree in psychology then, was that while you were going through or was it before, during, after your undergrad? Tell me a little bit more about that. Right. Yeah. So as I said, I sort of, it's, it was sort of waves of, uh, I guess, life calling, if you will, where I sort of said, I think that sounds like something I might be interested in and sort of veered away from it in my sophomore year and then sort of came back to got my degree. And then I graduated and sort of said, well, I, I don't think I want to teach. I'm not really interested in research. And I didn't really think about being a clinician, being a therapist at the time for whatever reason. Um, and so I just graduated and, you know, did some temp work. And uh, because of a degree in psychology, was hired in an administrative role in 
um, you know, sort of like a large, you know, provider of mental health services around the greater Boston area and in their sort of intake department. So I was handling phone intakes and in that role really got to both interact with people who were calling for therapy, for services, for medication management, for everything under the sun. And on the back end also interacted with the clinicians, the psychiatrists, uh, the, the clinical nurse specialists, the social workers and the psychologists. And it really was a, a great exposure to being in the world that, uh, you know, and, and so, and I said, Hey, maybe this, maybe I would pursue graduate studies in this. And, um, and then eventually that's what happened. So, and, and eventually you attended graduate school at Fuller graduate school of theology in Pasadena, California. Uh, I believe you received your master's in Christian leadership. Uh, and then you continued on for your PsyD in clinical psychology within the same school, I believe, but it was the School of Psychology at Fuller instead. So tell me, you know, there were so many different uh, schools, graduate schools in the state of California. And, you know, I'll share my screen and just give an example here real quick. Let me go here and share right here. And you'll see here's the uh, state of California, tons and tons of schools here, but I highlighted for, for you and for our audience if they're looking as well. Here's Fuller and they do actually offer a marriage and family therapy, master of science. And then you move forward and you can see both of these on this line, PhD and a PsyD in clinical psychology. So tell us, how did you decide on going to Fuller instead of all these other schools? <laughs> It's funny thinking about the answer to that question at this point, uh, so many years later, Brad, because um, I, I only uh, it was it was in some ways very haphazard looking back at it. I was moving back from the East Coast. Um, I grew up here in the Los Angeles area and was just returning home to be closer to you know family and extended family uh, without a real plan. And in the just a few weeks before I was going to move back without a specific plan in place, um, I heard about this program through another friend of mine. And um, before I had, I had even decided I was going to pursue graduate studies in psychology. And I said, huh, that's in Pasadena. That's, uh, you know, reasonable driving distance from home. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a legitimate graduate program. I, and uh, so clinical psychology, it was interest, it was, you know, as I had learned more about it, I was interested in it. Um, and, uh, you know, just a component of integrating sort of spirituality and uh, issues of existentialism and um, faith worldviews was really important to me. Um, and, uh, so it just interested me because Fuller, Fuller's program is unique as you sort of alluded to, it is a seminary. Mm -hmm. So they have a school of theology where, you know, they train people who are, you know, pursuing ministry and, and, you know, uh, ac higher academic roles in sort of Christian theology and stuff. And then they have a school of psychology. So, and there's very much sort of an integration and an interplay between those Two worlds, and um, so it was the only school I looked at, and it was the only school I applied to. And fortunately, they uh, they accepted me, and um, and uh, and and no regrets. It was it was a, it was a great fit for me, and um, have great memories, and and was very much shaped and formed there. Um, so <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily advise that perhaps way of doing it for anyone. Uh, anyone else who's pursuing graduate you know, studies, uh, I might, if it was my own 
child or someone I'm mentoring, I'd probably advise maybe a little bit more systematic <laughs> research as even as you demonstrated in a second there, but that's just uh, just the way I went about it. And I'm glad it worked out. <laughs> everybody has, I, as you and I were talking before we started the uh, podcast, everybody has a different kind of journey. And so I thank you for sharing that. I, I am curious, how did you decide whether or not you were going to get the PhD or go the PhD route versus the PsyD route? Can you speak to that for a moment? Right. And I didn't, I didn't even know the difference between those two until I applied to graduate school. I had never heard of a PsyD. Um, many people have never, you know, no, don't know anything about clinical psychology, don't know what a PsyD is, but, um, you know, once I was explained the difference and, you know, the PhD, you know, uh, entailed more, more of a research focus, more of a path towards a, an academic career, which just kind of didn't seem like me. I was more interested in, um, in being a therapist and the PsyD was much more clinically focused in that regard. And so that, that, um, that's the path I chose. Yeah. And I should mention for our audience that uh, the Fuller Theological Seminary is APA accredited. And so uh, for some people, if you want to make sure that uh, you get uh, the credentials, it's important to be aware of that program in the school if they're APA accredited as well. So I'm not saying you can't do anything, you can't you know, pursue a career, but if you want to get that licensure, uh, then you should pay more attention to that APA accreditation. Now, I know that you did a postdoctoral fellowship at Loma Linda uh, VA, and you trained using some evidence-based treatments for PTSD. Tell us a little bit more about that experience. Yeah, uh, again, really uh, grateful for that experience. I, so I was actually there for two years. My first year was as a pre-doctoral intern. And so uh, I guess for uh, viewers who are uh, considering doctoral studies, typically in clinical psychology, the last year is a full you're uh, working as a, as a pre-doctoral intern before you get your degree. So I was, I matched at the Loma Linda VA hospital, was very delighted to be there, soaked up everything I could, <laughs> uh, facilitated every possible group that there was an opportunity for. Um, and then fortunately uh, was able to stay on um, to do one extra year as a postdoctoral fellow in the trauma recovery program there. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we are working with, um, um, veterans, uh, you know, former service members of across the board, um, obviously in the trauma recovery program, a lot of veterans who had actually been in combat, a lot of veterans don't actually serve in combat zones, but, um, you know, a lot of uh, folks that had served in Vietnam era, uh, at, at that time, there was a lot of younger folks coming back, very young veterans returning from Iraq, Afghanistan, some folks that had served in the Persian Gulf, Somalia, and, and even some World War II vets. Uh, there was, uh, you know, I, I, that was just fascinating and, and uh, really interesting to work with people of, across different uh, uh, major areas of service, um, across lifespans, um, you know, and to, to help people who had, who had served. And obviously, we're dealing with a lot of diff difficult things, all, all, the, every, all the things that you hear about, uh, you know, the nature of post-traumatic stress um, and everything around that returning from the war. Um, so... So yeah, I mean, that's, that's just a, a, a brief intro to some of the things that I got to be involved with and help people with for a couple of years. Now, you already mentioned one thing. I had a question here. What was important to you when selecting a graduate psychology program? You already mentioned uh, proximity, uh, some of the faith-based uh, um, uh, uh, teachings as well. If you were going to give some advice to other people that were interested in whether they were getting a PsyD or a PhD, 
what kind of other advice would you uh, advise them on when they're trying to select a graduate psychology program? Right. Yeah. I mean, I suppose a number of factors. Yeah. As we sort of said, uh, location emphasis. I mean, I think if someone is very clear that they want to be, you know, heavily in an academic role, teaching undergraduate students, teaching graduate students, uh, contributing to the body of, of literature, um, you know, then probably maybe, maybe gravitating towards a larger, like a state program around here, UCLA, USC, um, you know, where there's, there's a heavy component. And those are typically going to be PhD programs, maybe more so than a PsyD program because of the heavy research component. Um, but then there's, you know, sort of professional schools of psychology that, um, you know, are, are private and, and, and may uh, have larger cohorts of students. Uh, around here in the LA area, we have Alliant uh, University, or it used to be the California School of Professional Psychology. Uh, a lot of great colleagues, people on our team uh, graduated from there. Um, so, yeah, and I think it's also, you know, you might look at the faculty at a certain program, and if you have a specific, you know, clinical interest or research mm -hmm. interest, um, that would obviously be a consideration. Um, and then I guess I suppose the, the reputation of a program. Uh, I, again, I was very fortunate. I didn't know much about Fuller or graduate training in psychology at all. But it, it turns out once I got to my graduate program, um, you know, Fuller actually had a very good reputation in the area for uh, the caliber of student and the level of training that they produced uh, for us and the people that had came before myself and my cohort mates uh, were doing great work in the field and were well received and, you know, getting uh, matched for, for great programs uh, for pre-doctoral internships and beyond. So that helps. Um, and then I'm very grateful for that. Good. Um, I know that you yeah. mentioned, I know I mentioned earlier that, uh, at one point, you, you didn't even consider going uh, the clinical route and becoming a clinical psychologist. So try to think back. And, and was there a point at which you thought, okay, this is kind of cool. I love uh, this. Was it the first time that you actually worked at one of those practices? Or tell me, you know, at what point, basically, did you know that you wanted to become a clinical psychologist? Yeah, I mean, I think it was, again, it's very weird in my case, because it might have just been in the moment when I saw, when I learned about my graduate program. Sure. And it was sort of looking over the shoulder of my friend who was saying, hey, you're moving to LA and there's, you know, have you heard of Fuller? And I was like, eh, somewhere maybe, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's a, it's a seminary and they have a school of psychology. And I said, huh. And and it was it was just sort of this weird all, all in a moment like, and then I sort of, it was like getting incepted with an idea where I was like, huh. And I kept thinking about it and returning to the website. And this is, you know, websites in, you know, the early 2000s, right? Sure. Um, <laughs> and uh, just uh, it's like, I, maybe, maybe I could really do this. And that's where it's, it just kind of all came together in a matter of a few days. And like I said, in the last few weeks before I moved um, back to California, uh, I, you know, approached a couple of professors and some people I had worked with there about, you know, references and was able to kind of cobble that together last minute before leaving. So it was sort of a <laughs> serendipitous in a sense. Well, it does um, sound like it. It sounds like it all came together quite uh, uh, fast for you and it uh, gelled for you. I, I believe you've worked at multiple uh, different practices. And uh, one uh, thing that I picked up on was you were actually an adjunct faculty. Um, you had an adjunct faculty appointment, I should say, at USC Keck Hospital. 
And I believe you were supervising the psychiatry residents on their CBT training. Tell us a little bit more about that experience. And for our audience members, they often wonder, how did you find that opportunity? Or how did you find these types of opportunities? Yeah, uh, well, I, I'm currently uh, in that role. It's a, it's a volunteer a voluntary faculty appointment as, uh, forget the appointment, uh, the actual title, uh, clinical or adjunct professor with uh, psychiatry and behavioral sciences. And I did some something similar previously, actually at uh, my alma mater at Fuller, supervising their doctoral students. But those, of course, those are clinical psychology graduate students. So these are, these are residents, these are physicians, uh, you know, pursuing psychiatry. And so as part of, um, you know, the residency training um, in their third year, they have, uh, they, they get to do some psychotherapy and not all, uh, you know, obviously most physicians don't have that training at all, but in psychiatry, you know, they're, they're very, very steeped in, um, you know, medication management and, and uh, psychopharmacology and all that. Um, but it's great that they also have a training component to actually learning the models of psychotherapy and be able to practice that. So um, at, at USC's psychiatry residency program uh, here in LA, they have both uh, supervision from a psychoanalytic perspective, psychoanalytic supervisors and CBT supervisors. And uh, so, so that's the role I'm in and uh, have been really enjoying, you know, working with physicians as, as supervisees for the last few years. What's yeah. the most challenging aspect of that uh, uh, role? Most challenging aspect. Um, I, it's really not challenging, to be honest, <laughs> because <Okay. laughs> I mean, most of these residents are, you know, they're 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 eager and um, intelligent and really, you know, uh, really interested in hearing, you know, a perspective. I'm I'm not a physician, um, you know, and and so obviously they have expertise that I don't have and never have, but. Uh, they're very eager to hear, you know, about anything I have to offer from my work uh, in the clinical field, my experience, and things that will benefit their patients. So um, it's it's really it's really it's actually very enjoyable, very stimulating, and um, um, <laughs> I really can't say there's much challenging um, about it, other than that it's all been over 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 Zoom. Even though I it's technically within driving distance, but I sort of started this during the pandemic, and okay. so but. Well, for everybody who's listening, yeah, for everybody who's listening, uh, I want to remind everybody that you are a licensed psychologist, and as I mentioned earlier, you're the executive director of the Cognitive Behavior Therapy Center of Southern California. Uh, I've seen on some of your videos, and and even on your website and and social media, you refer to it as CBT SoCal. Uh, and I'm going to share my screen again, and I want you to tell me a little bit more about the center, how you found this opportunity, and then how does this center uh, differ from maybe some of the other centers or other practices out there. So uh, while I'm sharing my screen, go ahead and tell me a little bit more about the center. Yeah, sure. Oh, you're, you know, we, we refer to it as CBT SoCal just because it's a bit of a mouthful to say <laughs> cognitive behavior therapy in California. Uh, and uh, our you know, website URL has always just been CBT SoCal. Um, and this website is actually in the process of getting overhauled too. So, uh, it would look different in maybe just a few weeks, <laughs> but, um, in any case, yeah, um, my, uh, uh, my good friend and former colleague and mentor, Dr. Rodney Boone, he was, a um, assistant professor at UCLA for many years, um, and recently retired. Um, but he founded, uh, the practice, um, quite a number of years ago as, a, and, you know, it, 
Uh, it's been a group practice for many years, specializing in working with people with OCD, um, anxiety disorders, uh, insomnia, among lots of other things. So we see people with sort of body, uh, body focused repetitive behaviors, um, uh, work with people with depression, ADHD. We're starting to do some testing and assessment services as well. Um, and, you know, um, I, I came to the practice, boy, almost 10 years ago. And um, after having worked at a couple other group practices, and uh, it just, it was, it was a great fit. Just, it, it, there was a lot more things for me to learn. I uh, enjoyed the chance to work with uh, primarily adults as my, as you know, where I do my best work, but also kind of some older teens. Um, and uh, we, we also work with, I don't work a lot with kids at this point myself, but um, a, a lot of folks on our team do. Um, so we just see a lot of very kind of specialized things that, uh, you know, in other practice I'd worked at um, and sort of generally going through training, I either didn't, you know, didn't see a lot of, didn't have uh, much training in, or, or even if it did feature, you know, kind of, we didn't really have the specialized uh, environment to, to, to really learn uh, the effective skills for dealing with it. Um, you know, again, depending on who's watching or listening to this, I mean, cognitive behavior therapy is uh, sort of one major school of thought or one large umbrella uh, theoretical orientation for doing psychotherapy. And uh, in contrast to sort of the psychoanalytic traditions, which are always also very rich and very important, you know, CBT is in general, a little bit more sort of hands-on, a little bit more directive, a little bit more uh, tangible. We uh, traditionally, we think of CBT as a little bit more of a time-limited uh, evidence-based approach. Um, but, you know, in private practice, we, we want to just meet people where, where, where they're at. And so we apply the skills and the theories and all the tools of CBT, but in, in a very flexible way. And, you know, we work with people short-term if they get what they need out of it. Great. Uh, but we also work with people longer term because, you know, people are people and, and no one is the same. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I could keep going on and on, but <laughs> if other questions. No, that's good. Up, that's good. Yeah. I, I like hearing more about it. There's one thing to read about it online and another thing to actually speak to somebody who's actually there. I should mention you have two different uh, locations, one in Torrance uh, in South Bay and the other in Glendale, which is in San Fernando and San Gabriel Valleys. Um, uh, the other thing that I, I really love doing when I'm bringing guests on is, is doing all the research. And I found a lot of your uh, YouTube videos, and some of them were quite fun to listen to as well. And, but in one of those videos, I remember that you had talked about exposure response prevention, or ERP. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Right. So uh, exposure and response, exposure with response prevention or ERP is um, sort of a, uh, I guess, one approach, uh, uh, one psychotherapy tool, I guess, that's under the larger umbrella of cognitive behavior therapy. Um, and it's uh, probably the, you know, one of the major approaches for helping people with OCD. Mm -hmm. And how I uh, would generally think about it is, you know, ERP exposure with response prevention. Uh, exposure is more targeted toward the O and OCD. Obsessions is unwanted thoughts, anxieties, fears, fear, you know, images is confronting them rather than avoiding them. It's avoiding thoughts and images that are uncomfortable is the most natural and intuitive response, but in the long run is not actually helpful or productive. 
Um, and then the RP and ERP response prevention is, um, you know, tailored to the C and OCD, the compulsions, which is anything geared towards finding immediate relief, neutralizing the obsessions, trying to reduce anxiety in, um, you know, ill-fated ways or dealing with the ruminative thoughts. And so it's sort of flipping OCD on its head and uh, giving people tools and the encouragement, the support and the coaching to find ways to systematically, um, again, sort of confront fears and decrease the anxiety uh, that OCD really can, can bring upon someone. So ERP is a major tool and uh, a very established uh, treatment in the research and in the OCD specialist community. It's not the only tool that we use with OCD, but, um, but it is a, is a very powerful one. So I'll share my screen again. And here's that uh, YouTube video. I brought this up uh, while you were talking about it. And uh, the important role of ERP in the treatment of OCD um, with uh, you and a, and a guest kind of having a casual conversation about this as well. You have some other uh, YouTube videos here. Psych Rally, I believe, was the podcast that you guys were uh, doing for quite a while there. And you also have a podcast uh, within CBT SoCal as well. And that's right here. And so if you're interested in, in a little bit more to learn more about uh, some of these therapies, as well as anything dealing with anxiety, I'd, I'd highly recommend. And we'll, we'll include this on the uh, website when we uh, go live with this podcast as well. Um, I, should, I should clarify, Brad, sorry, just the, yeah, that first one you showed was, I, I was actually the guest. <laughs> the host oh, okay. there was uh, Natasha Daniels, and she uh, does a lot of great work with uh, ch children and youth uh, dealing with OCD and and anxiety. And, and actually the link to the podcast on our, uh, our website is actually similar links to what we have here. Uh, Psych Rally was the name of a podcast that, uh, that we did a number of years ago, but good. But yeah. good. Okay. Yeah. No, that's good. And then mm -hmm. these two right here, uh, were, were interesting to me. I actually listened to these as well. These were a couple of the moments of meaning, uh, a few years ago that, uh, you basically shared, uh, some experiences that you had with some of your clients uh, so the audience could actually understand and, and almost put themselves, I felt like I was in, in their shoes, you know, like this one was about overcoming gambling addiction in therapy. And then the other one uh, what was this one about, I can't remember what this one was about. It was, um, oh, I think it started off. He asked that question, correct me if I'm wrong, but he said, Dr. Hishia uh, or Martin, have you ever considered or have you ever killed someone? Was that the right one? Yeah. yeah. So that, that struck right. me right away. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Moments of Meaning project was uh, sort of spawned by a, a, a colleague of mine in the LA area here. And it was sort of basically the idea that, you know, kind of like a TED Talk style mm -hmm. event um, where, you know, it's sort of you know, written and produced. And obviously we don't disclose, you know, confidential sure. information. So uh, some stories were told by colleagues that were sort of with the permission mm -hmm. of the person they'd work with. Um, but most of them are sort of disguised, basically, you know, where a lot of details are changed. So they'd be um, unrecognizable if, if anyone were to hear themselves in it. But, but yeah, it was basically so the, the mission to destigmatize um, what happens in therapy. Therapists are real people too. <laughs> have our own reactions and our own uh, things that go on, and, but also to, to humanize the process because, sure. uh, you know, there's billions of dollars that go out there marketing psychiatric drugs. Uh, there's no unified marketing effort uh, for, 
for therapy and for counseling, other than what you see in maybe movies and shows, which is always not not always a positive uh, portrayal. So right. that was that was the mission there. Yeah. So since you are a therapist, I have to ask this question: If you yourself were in therapy, how would you describe the ideal therapist? Ooh, wow, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think it, it it depends on on a lot of things. Um, you know, depending on on what uh, a person is dealing with, right? I mean, if you're, if you're dealing with something very specific, let's say like OCD, you'd want to work with someone who very much uh, knows what they're doing with something like that or eating disorders or substance abuse or something. No, I think for a lot of folks, if it's, um, you know, otherwise are, are not, I guess you could say, uh, you know, uh, acutely debilitated by a specific issue, but maybe dealing with um, sort of a more general form of anxiety or a general depression, then, you know, sometimes it's a matter of just this, this of the, the goodness of fit. Is this a person I feel a connection with, uh, you know, uh, that I'm on a similar wavelength with? And, and that may be colored by a number of things. Uh, do we share some similar traits? Do I, you know, do, if you're a cisgendered male, do you feel more, uh, you know, seen by a fellow cisgendered male? If you're um, you know, non-binary, do you feel more comfortable being seen by, by someone else who's, who's gender diverse, et cetera, someone from a similar ethnic background, a uh, spiritual background. Mm -hmm. So a constellation of factors um, that can really vary person to person and at different times even perhaps. And I did see, I, I did share on the screen a little bit meeting your team or meeting our team at the uh, CBT SoCal. And I did see Rodney Boone down there, but we had a good variety of people with PhD, PsyD, LMFT, um, and so um, you even had AMFT and ASW, ACSW. We're throwing out all these acronyms, but uh, <laughs> uh, a lot of different uh, experiences and, and certifications and a wide variety of people from which to choose if somebody wanted to go to the, your uh, center as well. A good variety of people that uh, you could select from. I want to share one other thing, but before I do that, um, I should ask, you know, kind of what's kind of general advice that you could give somebody who's trying to break into the field of psychology? You know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in it, but where should I go? What should I do to really find out if I'm really, if this is really something for me? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think um, even just what the, the, the show that you're producing here, Brad, is, is obviously a great resource. Uh, people are able to hear from different psychologists um, and kind of their journeys into the field, through the field, and what, what we're doing uh, with our degrees and with our training. So just resources like this are, are fantastic. There's, I mean, I just have to think there's so much more information out there now than when I or when you uh, applied to mm -hmm. graduate school um, in terms of being able to connect with other students, uh, social media groups and forums, people comparing notes about their experiences with uh, various graduate programs. So um, that's, uh, it's, it's hard to think from the perspective of, you know, myself so, so many years ago, because times are so different, but I guess that's probably what I'd be, I'd be thinking other than what we discussed earlier in terms of the different, uh, you know, criteria to consider. Um, but yeah, I mean, otherwise it's, uh, I think it, you know, people, I, I feel like people aren't going to pursue a four or five, six year degree and, uh, you know, the financing of that. That's a big commitment if, the, if they don't, if you're not really, if it doesn't really speak to you. 
Right. You know, right. it's not the kind of thing you do. And you sort of say, no, I did that because my mom told me to do it. And I realized <laughs> it wasn't for me for the most part. Right. Exactly uh, you might right. hear that with other uh, with other uh, professional trajectories. But for the most part, when I feel like, you know, people, if you're committed to this, uh, if you if you made this choice, you're 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 pretty for the most part, have have a sense of uh, really feeling like this is, this is what you want to do. I agree with you. I'm going to share my screen one more time. Just some of the social media um, sites out here. You have Facebook for CBT SoCal out here. Uh, some very good posts on here as well. Uh, congratulations, by the way. I meant to say this. You were honored <laughs> as a recipient of the 2022 Distinguished Member of the Year Award by San Gabriel Valley Psychological Association. So congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I also noticed that uh, in your history that you... Uh, I believe you volunteered with the local professional chapter of psychologists and you were on the board for a number of years. So that's yet another way to get involved and find out if you really like this field of psychology. Tell me a little bit more about that experience. Well, that relates to the, uh, the, the plaque and the, the uh, distinguished member award you mentioned there. So it's the St. Gabriel Valley Psychological Association is the mm -hmm the local chapter of psychologists in this area. Um, it's a subchapter of the California Psychological Association, uh, which I think has maybe 12 or 13 local chapters throughout our state. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just a great way to get to know, uh, it's connected with other colleagues, um, not just for cross-referring for different purposes, but just to you know, be part of a, a, you know, the professional community, um, to share resources, to advocate together, um, and, and just be in the know with what's going on at a state level, because things are always changing in terms of, you know, uh, regulations and continuing ed requirements. And um, I think there's even some statistic that says um, uh, membership and involvement in professional associations is highly negatively correlated with uh, malpractice suits. Oh. So people who are not involved with their professional communities are more statistically prone to that. So, you know, if that puts you at ease, it puts people at ease too. But, um, but, but I've enjoyed it. I was, I was served on the board for SGVPA, St. Gabriel Valley Psychological Association for uh, nine years. And so that's, you know, uh, probably the major reason they honored me with that award. Um, well, it's interesting, the, yeah. those statistics that you just shared, I'd never thought about that. But uh, yeah, it exists. Malpractice uh, suits do exist. So uh, yeah. I'm sharing the screen again. There, I, CBT SoCal also has a Twitter uh, page you can follow. And then you have the psych rally that you were mentioning before, also has a Twitter page. And then you have your LinkedIn page here as well. So if you wanted to find out a little bit more uh, about Dr. Xia and um, the clinic, and the practice, uh, go online and we'll, we'll include these links as well. Um, the last thing that we usually do at the end of our podcast is ask a couple fun questions. And one of them is tell me something unique about yourself, Martin. Unique. Um, well, yeah, I mean, uh, like you alluded to it earlier. So I had a second degree in, <laughs> in Spanish, um, and lived abroad, um, in Spain for a semester. I don't look like the typical person who you would envision um, speaking Spanish and it's deteriorated over time, to be honest, just from lack of use. <laughs> but um, that was always, you know, sometimes people didn't, wouldn't expect someone like me uh, spoke Spanish, but, um, but I enjoy foreign language and um, 
Um, my Mandarin is at a decent level at this point too. So, um, so yeah, and I, and, and I, I enjoy running. I was a, I was a sprinter in high school, um, and ran for nine years. Um, so that's something, uh, you know, as a fan of the sport and fan of competitive track and field, that's something I follow. So, okay. Yeah. yeah, I did read someplace that you you had that double major of Spanish uh, as well as Mandarin in your history as well. So I only speak one. I know a little bit of Spanish. I'm part German, but I I don't speak German at all. Maybe a couple <laughs> words. Maybe hi, bye, thank you. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah, not, not yet. yet. No, that's true. <laughs> so I I ask a lot of my guests, what's your favorite term, principle, or theory, and why? Yeah, term principle. So this is a specifically within the field, you mean? Any anything, actually. I've had yeah. some guests uh, talk about one of these terms within the field of psychology. Others have gone outside of the field. So mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, I think what comes to mind is, you know, we talked earlier about uh, ERP, exposure with response prevention for OCD. And, you know, the other major angle that we're using a lot with OCD is what we call the inference-based model, the inference-based approach or or inference-based CBT, ICBT. And long story short, basically the, the idea there is that um, OCD, anxiety, any ruminative thought process, it kind of pulls us into our imagination of things that could go wrong, what if scenarios, woulda, coulda, shouldas, what ifs. And, um, and that can be a real trap yeah, because, and, and you'll know it if you're stuck in that kind of uh, pattern because you'll it'll be tempting to try to think about something, figure out well what if would I would I could I do this dangerous thing that I'm afraid of doing? What if there's germs? Would I get sick? Would I go to hell if I did this? These kinds of mm -hmm. things, and these are in in some ways it's an unanswerable question, and um, helping people kind of just see that the, not just the content of their thoughts, but the process and helping them sort of ground in the present moment here and now in their five senses and their common sense is sort of just a way, an antidote to uh, helping them distinguish where to focus their attention uh, instead of getting looped into this ruminative sort of round and round dog chasing its own tail type process. And that's been very transformative for, for our work and for a lot of people that we're helping. So I, I mentioned earlier that I, part of the uh, what I love about uh, uh, researching the guest is I find out a lot of information as well. And I didn't really think about anxiety in so many different ways. And, and there's generalized anxiety, panic, uh, anxiety, social or performance anxiety, phobias. And I came across a disorder that I hadn't heard of before, and it's called body dysmorphic disorder. And uh, I, I'm sure that uh, I, I saw that someplace in my research, and so I'm not sure if you could uh, speak to that for a minute before we uh, move on. Yeah, body dysmorphic disorder has sort of traditionally been sort of categorized under the um, larger umbrella of, of OCD um, and probably has some similar features, but it's basically um, sort of a when, when someone can get really fixated on a certain aspect of their physical appearance, like my my lips look too fat or my nose is too big or the color of my skin or something where, you know, someone else might look at the person and say, I didn't even notice that. Right. And, uh, and, and sometimes what can happen is that, um, you know, 
you know, people can, can get very fixated almost as if that one part of their body or their appearance uh, becomes their whole person mm -hmm. and defines them. And they really just feel insecure and anxious and again, kind of ruminative on, on how bad that looks and how, who I am as a result of that uh, flawed feature. Uh, again, in a way where someone else might say, I didn't even notice or not really a big deal. And, but just by virtue of the attention paid to that uh, part of one's appearance, it, it kind of becomes a self-reinforcing, but kind of a trap, you know, right. because you, you, you can't just necessarily fix it or just think your way out of it. So, okay. Well, thank yeah. you for sharing that. Is there anything else that you'd like to bring up or discuss on this podcast? No, I just really appreciate your questions and I hope uh, any people listening, you know, find something of value uh, listening to us talk and, you know, hear, hear different psychologists share their, their journey about the work we're doing. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, talk with us. I enjoyed learning about your journey as well. Thanks again for sharing with us today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.